All right, all right. We'll come back to this in a minute, but uh, you got to get to the sermon at this point. So let's pray that God would teach us. Father God, thank you so much for your word and the direction it gives us. We pray that now as we encounter you through your word, that you would teach us um, about how to respond to you, uh, especially when we um, are surprised by you, uh, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, if the question of the morning is this, how do you love to get from one place to another or get some help doing that? Um, you know, I, I was in a discussion about this this week. It came up several times, in fact. Um, I called my brother back in West Virginia. That's where we grew up. He lives there. He's retired. He's older than me, and he is making a road trip all the way to California to see me and my family. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And uh, so he is literally on the road today somewhere between West Virginia and California. But I asked him this question. I said, so, brother, I said, uh, which app are you using? You know, you and your wife as you get in the car? That's a long journey. What, are you using uh, Google Maps or Waze or what are you using? He says, he says, you know, he says, he calls me little brother. He says, you know, little brother, uh, you know, I... I've never gotten into that stuff, you know? I said, so what are you using? He says, you know, I've been mapping out my journey. I use, I got a 1974 copy of the Atlas. You know, you know what I mean? Where every state is on a page. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen those? Yeah, he says, and, uh, and, 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 and when I checked it, Carlsbad, where we live, Carlsbad is still on the Atlas, even in 1974. I said, oh, brother, good luck. Good luck. But you know, for most of you, it's one of these two things you see on the screen, right? You know, recently my kids were trying to convince me to give up my addiction to Google Maps and to go with, with Waze. So I'm going to do a little survey. How many of you are, are Google Maps people? Google Maps people. Okay, that's a bunch of you. How many of you are, are Waze people? Ah, much smaller group, much smaller group. Okay, okay. How many of you are still using the Atlas like my brother? Oh, there's one, two, okay, yeah, you can admit it. How many of you remember things like this? How many of you remember triptychs from AAA? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, AAA. I remember those things. Remember those? They were, they were awesome. They were the pre-GPS app, right? Yeah, trip, tri- triptychs, triptychs. How many of you, I mean, here's another test. How many of you remember owning and using a Thomas Guide? Ah, uh, now I know who the salespeople are in the room. Yeah, oh my gosh, those things were vicious. You know, there was so much detail in those things, but they had every street on them. You know, whether you're a Thomas guide or a triptych or an, even an Atlas guy like my brother, there are times in which you will encounter a problem getting where you want to go. You run onto an unexpected situation. It happened uh, for me this past week. Um, uh, uh, One of our vehicles, we have two, one of them was in the repair shop up in Carlsbad, and and they called and said, hey, the car's ready. So I drove Becky down, and and it was her car being worked on. So so I dropped her off and paid the bill, and and, uh, she got in her car, I got in my car, and we both took off at exactly the same time. In fact, I was following her as we, as we came up and we approached I-5. Now, as we approached the 5, all of a sudden, we noticed something. There's no movement. I mean, it is totally locked up, right? 
So we pull up and there's a stoplight, fortunately, and we're trying to decide what do we do. Both of us were processing on the spur of the moment. We've encountered the problem. We got to decide which way to go. And Beck, I noticed Beck shoots out as the light changes. She just shoots across the freeway to try to navigate the, the back streets to our home. And all of a sudden, I had just activated Waze. Now, Waze all of a sudden, with this sweet voice, she's very nice, okay? In my case, it's a she. I don't know if you can change that or not. But anyway, I'd like to change it because I don't like women telling me which way to go. But, but the reality is I've gotten used to it a little bit with Becky. But, 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 but she came on and she says, turn right here, turn right here. Kind of a Southern accent, I think. So it's either my mind it was. So I just did an immediate right-hand turn. I had no idea where she was leading me. But she tells me to turn right, and then she had me do another right, and then another left, then another left, and then boom, she put me on the freeway one exit further south from where I was trying to get on. And as I got on the freeway, I looked back to my left, and what I saw were flashing emergency lights, and traffic completely stopped just to my left. You know what I saw to my right? Nothing but open highway, yeah. So I just put the pedal to the metal. I shouldn't admit that, but I started home down the freeway, virtually no traffic at all, going a little bit faster than I want to put on video for those that are streaming or watching this online. But, but all I can say is this. So now we have the test is on, right? Becky's following her instincts. I'm following Waze. And the Waze delivered me home. I got home. She was nowhere to be found. I went in the house. I put the garage door down. I purposely got something to drink and settled into my easy chair. <laughs> I, mean, I wanted to look like I'd been there for an hour, right? Now, in truth, it was probably a five-minute edge or something. But five, ten minutes later, she comes in and she says, so what happened to you? You were right behind me. I said, well, honey, Waze told me to go right. What were you using? She said, well, I didn't have it on. I was just following my instinct. I was following the way I always go when the freeway's locked up. And, you know, when I thought about that, I thought life is a lot like that, um, especially when you're surprised by an encounter, you encounter a problem, you encounter a roadblock in life, you encounter something that forces you to make a choice. Do I go the way I've always gone? Do I follow my instincts? Or do I listen to some person who I've never met on the app that supposedly has a better view of the situation than I do? And do I listen to it? Do I follow it? Do I trust it? Because I thought, why the heck is she guiding me through these back streets? And in reality, she knew the perfect way around the problem. Life is kind of like that. And we often have three choices when you encounter something unexpected. Here they are. You follow your usual path. You kind of follow your own instincts. Or you trust in something smarter, bigger, better than you. Those are the three choices. Today, we're going to study a passage in which different people, different groups of people, we're calling this series uh, Crossroads, 
a journey to the cross, a journey to Easter. Today, the event is the cross. The event is not Jesus teaching. It's not Jesus in the garden. It's not Jesus being on trial. Today, it's the dying Jesus. We're going to learn later from Mark and from Luke, which we'll study, that Jesus uh, was probably hung on the cross right around what they call the third hour. They count their hours from sunup at 6 a.m. So around 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. We're told that around noon that everything goes dark. We'll look at that in a minute. And we're told that about the sixth hour, he breathed his last. So Jesus, we're about the ninth hour, which would be six hours later. So we're going to study the last, not the last day, but the last six hours of the life of Jesus Christ with a view of looking at different groups, different people who encountered this shocking, surprising, gruesome event. And we're going to see how did they react when they had a choice? And how did Jesus respond to their reaction? How did they react? How did Jesus respond? We're going to look at four different situations as we move through the morning. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23 and follow with me as we begin to lead and look at these encounters uh, at the cross with the dying Jesus. It says, when they led him away, verse 26, pick it up there, 23, 26. They seized a man, Simon the Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Jesus was so beaten up at this point. He had been whipped. He'd been abused. He was so weak that he needed help carrying the cross. And following him was a large crowd of people. People and of women who were a mourning and lamenting him. Jump down to verse 32 with me. And two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. We learn from the other gospels. They were people that had been behind insurrection. They were people that were guilty of thievery and murder. These were people guilty of murder. And they were about to be executed alongside Jesus. Verse 33, and when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by just looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. you got to hear the sarcasm in their voice. And the soldiers were mocking him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's even a sign, an inscription above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. You know, as we stop right there at verse 38, uh, I kind of roll these people into one group. I call them in your outline. If you want to take a few notes, I've given you an outline to use. It'll help you. Uh, the soldiers, the crowd, how did they react? The soldiers, the crowd, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, and, and their reaction was crucifixion and mockery. Crucifixion and mockery, if you want to capture it, capture it. 
Crucifixion, the most uh, gruesome way to be executed, literally spiked to a cross uh, through usually not exactly the hands, but just below the hands through the, through the, through the uh, wrist so that the bone structure would hold the weight of the body and, and nailed to the cross and their feet nailed, crossed and, and nailed through the ankles and, and he, hang, he hangs there. And most people, it took much longer to die than Jesus died, and we'll see why in a minute. But the short version, I don't want to get too graphic, but the short version is it would, it would absolutely stretch the diaphragm under the weight of the body hanging from the cross to the point where you couldn't even breathe. You would suffocate if you didn't do what was painful, which is to pull yourself up. You had to pull yourself up to take a breath. And when you can no longer do that, you're a dead man. Jesus hung on the cross, bleeding and dying, and he was there for six hours, and the first reaction that we see is crucifixion mockery. He was abused from all directions. They used phrases like hurling abuse at him. It says, the people stood by while the rulers, and the key words are, the rulers were sneering at him. The soldiers were mocking him. Yeah, you claim to be the king. We'll show you what we do to kings. If you're really the king, if you're really the Messiah, show some of this miraculous stuff we've heard about. You've raised the dead. You've done all these miracles, supposedly. You can't even get off the cross. What was Jesus' response to their mockery? In short, it's this phrase, undeserved mercy. Even in the midst of his pain, he gives undeserved mercy. The quote, I'll give it to you on the screen, is Luke 23, 34, Father, He cries to his heavenly father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They don't get it. They don't understand what they're doing. So Jesus' response to to the most incredible form of death and pain is actually not, you know, father, why don't you show up and fry them? That's what I would have prayed, okay? But that's not Christ. He gives them mercy. He says, father, hold back. He knew that his heavenly father could take care of his enemies in a snap of of a finger, boom, they're gone. He knew that he could do anything he wanted to do, but he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what's going on, and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. It's incredible to see the um, mercy displayed by Jesus. Look at the second encounter. This is the one we'll focus on for most of the sermon. The second encounter is the two thieves. Pick it up in verse 39. It says, And one of the criminals who were hanging there uh, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's hurling abuse. It's interesting. They don't record the abuse. You got a murderer and a thief who's in the midst of being crucified and dying. I don't think that the abuse that he was hurling at Christ could be recorded in the scriptures, Um, even though the scriptures are very much an R-rated book. I mean, it's graphic. It tells tells a lot of detail about a lot of stories, but yet it just uses the phrase, he's hurling abuse. But notice the second thief. I kind of summarize their reaction with this phrase, both prideful frustration on the one hand compared to humble faith on the other. That's the contrast between these two thieves. They're both equally guilty, but the one is hurling abuse out of anger, frustration. He's uh, pridefully um, 
abusing Jesus. The other thief, though, exhibits a type of humility as he's dying and exhibits faith, a humble faith. Listen to what he says. He says, but the other thief answered, rebuking him, saying, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. You know, we're guilty for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he was saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. What we see with the two thieves are very different responses. Um, But the response of Jesus toward the thief who, who expresses faith is Jesus responds with unearned forgiveness. He gives unexpected mercy in the first case. In the second case, it's unearned forgiveness. Why do I use the phrase unearned when he promises this thief eternal life? Uh, because he says, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. That's, that's the promise of eternal life. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what's behind that? Let me just kind of unpack that for a minute. Paradise in the Old Testament, was the place of the righteous dead. Uh, It's not exactly the same as heaven, although it's heavenly, okay? It's the place of the righteous dead. It's the place of those who who receive eternal life, and it's the place of those who are waiting later uh, a, a transfer, you might say, to heaven and eternal life in the kingdom and forever and ever Uh, eventually on a place called the new heaven and the new earth. But the bottom line for our sake this morning is it's like like heaven. It's the place of the, the person that God says, I declare you righteous in response to your faith and you are with me. Uh, The contrast to paradise is the place of the unrighteous, which different phrases are used in the Old Testament. Uh, Sheol is used to mean both the grave and the place of the unrighteous. Um, Hades is used, or the term hell. Those are all the place of the unrighteous, uh, which is where the soul goes when you die without forgiveness, when you die separated from God. Um, and eventually, Scripture says that all of that is, will end up in a place called the lake of fire for eternity. So it's the place of the unrighteous. But a lot of times this story gets, gets focused on because of why could Jesus actually offer this murderer and thief while he's dying on a cross that type of a promise that today you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, what are the aspects of faith that we see in this dying criminal? Okay, what are the aspects of faith that answer why? And we don't have time to go into them in real depth. I just don't want you to miss them, though, because when you read the text in Luke, here's what you see. He feared God. He had a respectful fear of God. He realized that there is a God, and we are not him, and that we someday will answer to him, that this concept of judgment after death is real. It's something I think a lot of times in our culture today 
uh, our modern day global culture even is de-emphasizes that God is, uh, he is loving, yes, he is merciful, yes, but he's also going to be our judge and that we will all stand before him in judgment someday. That's, that's a fact of life. And he recognized that and he recognized, good grief, this is God and you're throwing abuse at him? And so he chastens his buddy, his partner in crime, do you not even fear God? I think he was probably pointing at Christ as much as he could point on the cross. He had a fear of God. He acknowledged his own sin and guilt. He said, we are condemned. We are suffering justly for our crimes. We blew it. We did it. And now we're paying the price. This man has done nothing. He acknowledged his own sin and guilt. He believed that Jesus was innocent and was indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the King. He believed that. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's because he humbled himself and he, and he sought mercy from God. He said, Jesus, remember me today. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that he was who he claimed he was, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the coming king. And he could tell right now, Jesus doesn't look like a king. He's hanging on a cross dying. But yet this thief acknowledged Remember me when you come into your kingdom because I know that's where you're headed. Your kingdom is coming and you will be the king. And he says, I just asked for mercy. Don't, don't forget me. I think the thief was surprised by the answer because the answer grows out of the grace of God, the mercy of God. And Jesus says, well, today, in response to you expressing this faith in me, today you'll be with me in paradise. Before the day's out, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. What an incredible act of grace. What an incredible act of grace. We'll come back to this thief later. But just notice all that was in his statement to Jesus. The third reaction is one that most people overlook. And that's the reaction not of the mob or the crowd or the religious leaders, not of the two thieves on the cross, but the third reaction is actually the reaction of God the Father. And I don't want to miss that. God the Father reacts to what's going on beginning in verse 44. Read with me. Here it goes. It says, now, it was now about the sixth hour, so around noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured. Stop right there for a minute. So at this point, the father reacts. God brings, through some miraculous means, uh, this clouding out of the sun to where it's like an eclipse. It's like total darkness. So now Jesus is hanging on the cross in darkness. Why did God do that? He didn't have to do it. He wanted Christ to be seen by the world. We know that he was publicly executed for all to see. But at this point, for some reason, the Father clouds out the Son and puts Jesus in darkness. Well, one thing you need to know is darkness is often used in Scripture as a symbol of sin. In fact, in Luke, when Luke, earlier in Luke, when he talks about the coming Messiah, he actually uses this phrase. In Luke 1.79, if you want to write it down, look it up. He says, the Messiah comes to save us, and he describes the Messiah as coming to save those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's a great phrase. In fact, in that passage, it even refers to Jesus as the sunrise from on high. So it's like if Jesus 
You know, if we're the ones in our sin that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, Jesus is like when the sunrise breaks on the horizon and suddenly just throws out its light, throws out its warmth. If you've ever been on a cold morning, whether you're sitting at the beach or sitting in the mountains, and I mean, it's been dark and cold, and all of a sudden, that light just kind of peeks over. It's, it's awesome, isn't it? And it's, that's what Jesus is. That's what the Messiah is. He's like a, a sunrise you've been waiting on all night long as you sit in darkness and the shadow of death. But now, the Father puts Jesus in darkness. I believe that theologically there's something very important going on here. He puts him in darkness at high noon so that Jesus can respond with what I want to call unfathomable sacrifice of love. Jesus' response to being put in darkness for the next three hours from noon until three in the afternoon, Jesus hangs in darkness I think part of it may have also been just the compassion of the Father, knowing what Jesus was about to endure as he took the sins of the world upon himself, that he compassionately puts his son in darkness so that only he can see. It's interesting that Jesus is in darkness so that he can carry the sins of all of humanity. I think it's probably why Jesus cries out. Now, this is not in Luke, so make a little footnote in your Bible right now to look up Mark 15, 34, where Jesus at this point cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where'd you go? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out from the cross in darkness. I've taught this passage once before here a few years back, so some of you will remember that I pointed out this is the only time in the life of Jesus he refers to God as God. He always refers to him as Father. He even teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, right? And he's always talking about my Father. Even when he prayed on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? Only here does Jesus, as he hangs in darkness, refer to his heavenly father as my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he sensed in his spirit something was happening. He sensed that the father had to to look away from him, the father that was loving him more than anyone could love a son. But yet at this point in time, Jesus is bearing the sins of the world. Write this reference down, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says Jesus was bearing our sin as our substitute. In our place on the cross. Here's the direct quote. It says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, the sinless one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's Jesus who's taking literally the guilt, shame, and sin of all of humanity of all time on himself. Now, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Probably the best description, though, that I've ever run across, uh, and I read this a few years back, but I looked at it and I said, this is too good not to use. And I'll give you the reference if you want to read it. It's one of the best books on suffering called When God Weeps, uh, When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata and her pastor, Stephen Estes. And in here, they describe 
rather graphically what they think is going on. As Jesus hangs in darkness, this is how they describe it. He's encountering the physical pain of the cross, but they say this, but these physical pains are a mere warm-up for the other growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to drift around Jesus, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement of our souls. The apple of the Father's eye turns brown with rot. His Father, he must face this death without his Father. From heaven, the Father now rouses himself like a lion, disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on the cross. Never has the Son seen the Father look at him so. Never has he felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky, and the Son does not recognize these eyes." Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, lied, and hated. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, and overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. All the duties that you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor and played the coward so belittled by name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. You who have the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons. Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying off politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist acts, and founded false religions. You have traded slaves. You have relished every morsel and bragged about it. I hate and I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you now feel my wrath, says God? Of course, the Son of God is innocent. He is blameless. He is blamelessness itself. The Father knows this. But the divine pair, the Father and the Son, have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks, drowning in raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored up wrath against humanity from every century explodes in a single direction at the cross. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. 
You see, the Trinity planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled it. And the Father rejected his own Son, whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man, from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for our sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. You know, when you listen to that, you begin to, it helps me at least begin to realize that the most painful thing experienced by Jesus wasn't the physical death on a cross. It was having all of my cruddy sin and all of your sin and all the sin of every sinner that ever lived on his back on the cross and bearing that guilt, that shame, that sin, he sacrificed himself. Now, the story gets better. Because now at this point, also not recorded in Luke, but in John 19.30, Jesus says something else we cannot miss. He cries out in darkness from the cross. Now, it is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It's the word that used to be used, by the way, when a person went to prison and they had a debt that had to be paid before they could be released. It was the word that was stamped on the certificate of the crimes of the prisoner. The prisoner would have a certificate of crimes against him or her. Got it? And when, they, when he had fulfilled, he or she had fulfilled the sentence to be forgiven of those crimes, when they let him out of jail, they gave him that certificate and they stamped this very phrase, to Tetelestai, boom, on it. It is paid. It could be translated. It is finished. It is paid in full. And Jesus cries that very thing. It's finished. Now notice what Jesus said. He did not say, I'm finished. See, he said, it is finished. My mission is accomplished. The debt has been paid. See, this was not a cry of a victim. It was a cry of the victor. Jesus saying, it's done, Father. And then he says one more thing. Then he says, Father, this is in Luke 23, 46. Look at it. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says in Scripture, then he breathed his last. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But now, what's he calling him? God or Father? See, now he's, he's back to expressing his trust, his relationship to his heavenly Father. He says, it's finished. Father, here I come. It is done. It is finished. And I trust you with my spirit. And he breathed his last I believe Jesus is hanging on the cross and he can only stay alive as long as he pulls himself up and takes another breath as he's bleeding and dying. I think at this point in darkness, after six hours, he says, Father, it's finished. And he gave up his life. See, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him by the Romans or anybody else. He surrendered it. He says, it's finished, 
And I think he let his body weight drop and he died. They were even surprised that he had died so quick. That's why they came and actually thrust a spear into his side later to test whether or not he had died because you can tell from the appearance of the blood that flows out whether a man is still alive or whether the body has died and the blood is beginning to separate. Um, It's all medically sound, actually. Jesus gave his life up. It is finished. One more thing happened, though. Right before he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, The scriptures say, and Luke mentions it briefly, that the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Think, well, what's up with that? Well, you need to understand that the veil of the temple was to separate the place where God dwelt, called the Holy of Holies, from the worshipers. Because if if a worshiper in their sin came into the presence of a holy God, you would drop dead, all right? So they had this massive veil. It was 30 feet, we learn from Scripture, 30 feet high and uh, about 60 feet long. But we also know from rabbinical tradition that they say that the veil was woven of these thick cords, so the veil was about as thick as as a man's hand, about four inches thick. That's not in Scripture, but that's what rabbinical teaching and tradition teaches us. Now, this massive curtain designed to to block every chance of viewing what is behind it, that is the place where God himself dwelt among his people, is ripped open from top to bottom. There is no way humanly possible for that to be done by anyone other than the hand of God. Because God wanted to demonstrate and say to us that Through the death of Christ, we now have access to come to God, to come to the Father, because Christ's death has removed the separation between us and a holy God, because our sins have truly, honestly been paid for. See, isn't that an awesome picture that God himself took a 30-foot, four-inch thick curtain and just ripped it from top to bottom? There's no way, not even an earthquake could do that. But God did it because it was indeed finished. You see, as we look at this story as a series of encounters, the criminals, the the crowd, the crowd just thought Jesus was an object of mockery. He's a loser or else he wouldn't be on that cross or he wouldn't stay there. You had two thieves one is abusing Jesus and angry that he's having to die for the, his own sins, and the other humbly comes and seeks forgiveness. You have God the Father who's in control, watching the whole thing from heaven, who has to turn his back on his son and let him bear your sin, my sin, so that he could forever forgive and receive us. So, There's one other last encounter, though, and I call it our encounter, where we ask the question, who is your Jesus and which way do you choose to go? If you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you come to a surprising thing, in this case, not a blocked freeway, but a man on a cross who says he's the son of God dying for you and me, 
If that's the intersection you come to, which way do you go? I like what the thief did. If I were to summarize it for you one more time, that one thief, here's what he did. He realized he had nothing to offer, but he had to react to Jesus. You couldn't just ignore Jesus. I think that's true of you and me. You got to decide, who is this Jesus? Because we have nothing to offer. The thief on the cross, when Jesus gave him forgiveness, imagine, how many good works had he done? Answer? Zero. He'd never been to church or to temple, at least not recently. He didn't have time to say, Jesus, I, I believe in you and just get me down and I'll, I'll join a church, I'll get baptized, I'll go to temple, I'll, I'll go to synagogue, I'll go to seacoast, I'll even babysit the three-year-olds. You know, that's real sacrificial love, right? Yeah, you know, whatever. But he had never given a dime in the offering. He had nothing to offer God, and neither do you and I. Going to church, being a good person, we still sit in our sin before God. It's, his, it's our sin that he takes on the cross. And because of that, he can offer us life. Wow. Imagine that. He offers that life as a free gift. He offers mercy, forgiveness, and eternal life, just as he did to that thief, to you and me. But then he calls us to place faith or trust in Christ as our way. You know, Jesus did say, John 14, 6, I am, you remember it? I am the ways, the truth, and the life. That's a bad joke. I shouldn't have put that in there. <laughs> I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But all joking aside, when you come to confront the cross, you do have to decide, am I going to just follow my history? Am I going to follow my instincts? Am I going to follow my culture? Am I going to follow what I've always thought was the way to God and get lost doing it? Or am I going to listen to an authority that's looking down from heaven that knows there is a way around your need for a, for, for a savior and forgiveness. There is, there is a way, and the way is through the cross. The way is through Christ. Christ is the way. He is our guide. And his word will direct us not only to eternal life, but to real life every single day. He is the way. Choose him. Choose him. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much that you are the way, the truth, the life. You're our guide. Your word is truth. And Father, we trust in you today. Father, for a lot of us, maybe that's something we did years ago, but today I pray that we would pause and reaffirm that our total trust is in you, not ourselves that our life and forgiveness and mercy comes as a gift from God, but a gift that was earned at a high price by Jesus on the cross that day. Father, for those of us that may be new here or new to this idea of exactly why Jesus died, um, 
I would encourage you to pray with me right now, a simple prayer that I prayed years ago that says something like this. Okay, Lord Jesus, I choose you as my way. I choose what you did on the cross, dying for my sin. I choose your resurrection, proving that it worked, proving you're alive to offer me life. I choose to put my faith and trust in you, not myself. And I choose from this day forward to want to follow you as my source of direction in every juncture of life. I trust you in Christ's name. Amen.